All right. So since since you came up with the joke, do you want to go ahead and intro the show? Yeah, sure. Welcome to Shoot the Corket. No, um, <laughs> I'm going to say it's Urkel. No. Welcome <laughs> to Shoot. <laughs> All right. That's just, it's just somebody laughing. We added our own laugh track. All Did right. I do that? Oh, jeez. <laughs> Welcome to Shoot the Corecast, the official companion podcast to the RF Generation Shmup Club. This is a family-friendly shmup-themed podcast that, like Dr. Strangelove, learn to stop worrying and love the bomb. This is Addicted, and with me I have... Metal Fro, also known as the Game Boy Guru. And uh, as Addicted mentioned, we are part of RF Generation. RFGeneration.com is the website we're affiliated with, and it's a great place to be online because we have a huge database where you can catalog your game collection. We have a great front page with articles and videos created by myself and other contributors to the site, and we have great forums where we have the Shmup Club and the other monthly playthrough hosted by Single Banana and Grey Ghost 81, and lots of other topics uh, along with um, some new stuff that's going on um, with some top 20 lists that are being made by uh, Easy Racer. And so lots of cool stuff going on there, plus the Discord channel that we chat in. So please go check it out. It's all free to use at rfgeneration.com. Yeah, a lot of fun stuff to check out while you're in quarantine. Yeah, <laughs> Right. All right, as always, we have a question of the month, and this qu month's question is, what shooting game do you feel is so close to greatness, but just misses the mark, and why? And the first response that we have here is from Crabmaster, also known as at Kelsey Polnick. Not a popular opinion, but life force for me. I really dislike some of the design choice for levels in that game. I'm going to have to hit him up and hear what he thinks of some of the those life force levels maybe he just doesn't like the <clears throat> beginning level with the with the brain on there or um, what the, is there anything in there that stands out to you in life force uh not specifically but it's been a while since i've really put some time into it so i'd i'd probably have to go back to it and uh you know give it a playthrough sounds like a challenge for shmup of the month to me <laughs> yep JB, uh, at Need New Shorts, uh, he says, Gradius I love, but I suck at it because it's so difficult. And maybe that's not a design flaw as much as just me sucking. <laughs> uh, uh, well, that was a, a little bit different take on the question there. <laughs> uh, and I, I have to say that, you know, uh, rest in peace, but I have to say, I mean, Gradius was d definitely hard and... <laughs> Part of the design team that was the, the impetus for the creation of the Konami code. Yes, 
So it's not just you. It is a hard game. You do with that Gradius syndrome. You keep going and going and going, and then you make a mistake, and then you press reset. Yep. Yeah, and actually, Crabmaster responded to JB and said, "I almost wrote Gradius as well. To recover after a death really hurts it a lot for me." And yeah, Gradius syndrome is real. We've mentioned that many times. Oh yeah. I rank it right up there with uh, PTSD caused by night playing too much 1942. Huh. All right, the next one comes from at CollectorCast. Zanuck cross Zanuck, because not enough people ever got to enjoy it. And I have to say that is entirely true. Zanuck cross Zanuck, e- even though it's prohibitively expensive and... I think it's still available on the PS3, the Japanese PS3 eShop, is one of the best Zenit games I have played. I was a little bit down on the NES port, and playing Zenit cross Zenit opened my mind. Three different ships, so many options, such great music. It really is something that, if you ever have a chance, you should give it a try. Yeah, and... I thought it was a unique answer because uh, it's a little bit different take on on uh, the question. You know, when I threw it out there, it's like, what game to you hits on a lot of a lot of things, but doesn't quite live up to its promise, or you know, maybe doesn't do enough stuff right so that it becomes a really memorable game or whatever, and. And uh, Duke Togo uh, took this in a different direction, so kudos to him for thinking outside of the box. Uh, Our friend Easy Racer, at Easy underscore Racer on Twitter, he says, The first thing that comes to mind is Biometal. Good graphics, unique mechanic, and while it gets criticized for its soundtrack, those criticisms are way overblown in my opinion. Hard to place why it's not a more-loved classic maybe needs more stage variety and better difficulty balance. So he kind of came at it from a similar angle that, you know, there's a game that maybe, maybe hits on a lot of good notes. And, you know, the music thing is a bit of a stumbling block for some people, because of course that that's the shmup that's infamous for with the North American release, the soundtrack being replaced with a licensed soundtrack release that is essentially chip tune sample versions of, of um, um, Two Unlimited, who is famous for appearing on the Jock Jams, you know the ESPN Jock Jams CDs, and and uh, their one song being at basically every sporting event from uh, right around 1991 or 92, whenever that came out, for you know about a half a decade, that song was at every sporting event. <laughs> I was, you just had me picturing the <laughs> uh, shmup where you actually hear the NBA Jam quips instead. <laughs> just getting power up and says, he's on fire. <laughs> oh, that would be amazing. Or destroying the boss. Boom shakalaka. <laughs> Someone needs to make that a shmup yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> the next one is from at Saturday Develop. UN Squadron. All the levels are great. Well, except for the cave level. And UN Squadron, well, a little hint here that uh, might be something that you want to keep an eye on for later in the year. 
Yeah, possible foreshadowing. <sighs> dun dun dun. <laughs> uh, at Maz 6708-6804 says, Super R-Type. Horrible slowdowns and incredibly unfair checkpoints. A debacle for IREM, especially considering the excellent R-Type 3 on the same system a few years later. Um, now was uh, Super R-Type, that was close to launch, if not a launch game, wasn't it? Yeah, I think it was a launch window game. So it kind of suffered the same fate as Gradius 3 with the slowdown, but the checkpoint thing was something new. Um, something new that that they put into the game because essentially Super R-Type is a a bit of a redux of R-Type 2 but with a new intro level and some different stuff put into it or I guess a retooled intro level and some different stuff put into it and yeah I I don't think it's a bad game but I think it's a it's a missed opportunity yeah I think that the, the slowdown came as part of the dev kits it was just part of the built in code <laughs> <laughs> for for, for launch NES SNES titles there. Oh yeah, there's there's probably a there was probably a uh, a subroutine in there, add slowdown, or you know <laughs> something like that. Or, or you'll find out later that someone discovered if you decompile the code here, just like we did with Super Mario sixty four, and then we add this flag and recompile it, it runs a lot better. Huh. Actually, right. I wouldn't. I wouldn't be surprised if Super R Type eventually gets the SA One hack. Oh like my! Gradius Three. Nice. We can make it happen. There you go. All right. Next one comes to us from at Lord Wampus. Add Gradius Three for the Super Nintendo as a close follow-up. Two disappointments at SNES launch, and we just talked about this, and I, I have to agree. It was disappointing, but when you're actually playing the game. It's well, it's pretty helpful. There, you'll find out pretty soon yourself, right, Fro? That about how the SA one helps out Gradius three. Yeah, I I decided to. Uh, well, you alerted me to a copy of uh, a cartridge copy of a Gradius SA one hack that was available. So I decided to spring for that. So that will be arriving in the mail hopefully soonish and. I will have the opportunity to uh, get destroyed even more frequently in the second stage. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like we need to have you do a stream guide in. Oh, geez. That might be a fun weekend stream of just me and a whole lot of deaths. (laughs) Sounds good to me. (laughs) Um, At nefarious underscore Wes... He says, how about Legendary Wings solely for the repeat bosses? And yeah, I I could see that. I mean, I went through and did um, I went and, and did a one credit clear of Legendary Wings on NES last year, late-ish last year for the NES challenge for RF Generation. And yeah, the repeat bosses is kind of an annoying thing. Although it's not exactly the same boss every time. It's like it, it's the same basic framework, but they sort of make it harder and iterate on it ever so slightly. So yeah, it, it it's basically the same boss, just harder each time you see it. But 
yeah, that gets a little bit old. New bo- same boss, but harder each time you see it. That sounds a lot like Zaxxon. Kind of, yeah. I mean, it, it really is uh, an early shooting game convention that I'm glad was that I'm glad was uh, was done away with early in the in the genre's life because I really feel like unique bosses are one of the cool things that brought that the genre brought to us during the mid to late 80s and then of course in the modern era boss fights are kind of the big set pieces in these games and so that's one of the more focal points of a lot of a lot of the the shmups today yeah you know it's not like uh, the masters at konami would ever do that right that they, they didn't they never reuse bosses over and over and over again in shmups hmm I think the now, big core Mark II might uh, want to have a word with you. <laughs> yeah, the big big core Mark II is, is as, as you allude to, there is in almost every single game there. It's like the uh, oh, um, what's I don't know what the name of it is, but the that is it a Medjin Mark? I'm trying to think of the in the early Capcom games where they had that. Uh, the circle that always gave you points that was hidden. It was in Mega Man. It was in 1942. It was in Trojan. It was oh, everywhere in the early games. You talking about the Yashichi? Yashichi, thank you. Yeah, that, that one showed up everywhere. Yeah. All right. And the last last response comes to us from at Mark MSX, also known as the Shmup Father. <laughs> Blazing Star, the levels are too long and bloated, a masterpiece otherwise. And Blazing Star is one that I want to cover at some point, hopefully next year, is we need to get some more uh, Neo Geo. Loving their auras, autocorrect loves to type in Bro Geo. <laughs> Bro Geo forever! <laughs> <laughs> we definitely need to do either that or. Uh, viewpoint or something something within the neo geo realm oh man i would be i would be down for for any of those uh, blazing star would be would be easy enough because i think uh that's available on you know e-shops and things like that so it's a little bit easier to acquire you don't have to buy an aes or a consoleized mbs or a neo geo cd and then spend a bucket load of money to get a playable copy of the game so or a mister Right, so we'll have to. Th- oh, that's right. We'll have to think about that one for next year. Well, I'm not. Uh, I'm not av- Before we go any further, I'm not advocating that everyone just go out and buy a Mister so they can play a game for uh, Shmup Club of the Month here. Right, <laughs> but I mean, you know, those of you who have it or have been thinking about it, maybe on the fence, you know, that might just be one more reason to, uh, you know, to put in the pro column. Oh, definitely. So yeah, a lot of good responses on that this month. So what would yours be? Well, I don't think I, I not to not to be spoilery in any way, but I think our game of the month could qualify at some level, um, and we can kind of expand upon that as we go along. But otherwise, for me, it's it's hard to say. Uh, there are a lot of shmups that I enjoy and I think they're solid. Um, 
and I don't really have anything bad to say about them. They just may not resonate with me that much when I am done playing and I turn it off. It's like, that was fun. Now let's move on to something else. So, yeah, it's hard to say. There are so many what I would call workmanlike shmups that that are fun to play, but they don't necessarily miss the mark because they're not really shooting for the stars. They're just solid. They're just good at what they are. They're serviceable. Yeah, they're serviceable. Whereas there, and then there are a, a, enough games that are kind of teetering on that line between kind of bad and hot garbage. And then there are a handful that I would consider to be masterpieces, games that just absolutely do everything right. So the one that I'll say, and this is because I've had plenty of experience playing it, and I'm just going to say it's Dompachi from Cave. I like it. I think it has a lot going for it, and it set the template for a lot of what was to come. But I think Cave knew that they had something that they had something there, but they basically, I don't want to say they retconned it with, with Dodonpachi, but essentially no one talks about Dompachi anymore. Everybody talks about Dodonpachi and then the rest of the games in the series. People even talk about Dodonpachi 2 B-Storm, which isn't even an official sequel because it wasn't developed by Cave. They talk about that more than they talk about the first game. And Dompachi really literally was not only Cave's first shoot-em-up, but it was their first game. Um, so it's historically significant. But yeah, I think there are some things that I really like about it, but I do think it kind of misses the mark because what they developed with the sequel, with the chaining and all of that stuff, there's kind of a proto-version of, of a lot of that stuff in the first game. There's a lot of great elements, and they I think they mostly come together, but it just doesn't quite gel the same way that the rest of the games in the series, and indeed, most of the rest of the cave catalog does. Yeah, this is about what I expected for responses. You sort of get that formation of the idea, and then it's refined upon within the sequels, and then everyone just talks about the sequels because the idea is perfected in the sequels. Yeah. And that that makes total sense on there. And I was trying to come up with a, one myself, but I think I'm going to skew a little bit away from that and say, for me, it would have to be Blazing Lasers. The game is very well done. It's just the levels themselves goes on for a little bit longer than they should, in my, in my opinion. If they were a little bit shorter and maybe had a little bit more variety of levels, that would that would be a, a 10 out of 10 game. It's so close, but I think that after a while you're just spending and hearing the same music and the same stuff, it just sort of grates on. Somewhere in between a rising type shmup where you get with Strikers 1945 and, and maybe uh, <laughs> not quite the... Like, it needs to it's just not quite fully balanced enough for the you feel like the love feels more like a, a, a trek instead of a you're know, flying your ship through space you know I, I got I'm 
I'm trying to say it just it goes on a little too long for its own good for all the levels. Yeah, I would have to agree. I mean, I think as we talked about in that episode, you know, each of the levels is really long. The the music in each level is I think it's good, but because the levels are so long, it repeats a lot. Now, I don't mind that on a couple of the levels because, I mean, particularly stage two, because I really like that track. But yeah, the levels themselves do kind of overstay their welcome. And then you get to the final level and it's such a it's such a gauntlet that it takes it, it, it changes the flow of the game enough that what is a bit of a slog with a few spots of difficulty going up to that final stage then just becomes a a slaughter and yeah it just i I think you're right i think it's it's too long but otherwise i i really enjoyed the time i spent with the game yeah all right and speak and speaking of games let's give a brief introduction for the game for the month of february and that was grid seeker yeah Grid Seeker was developed and published by Taito Corporation. And according to Wikipedia, the company was founded by Michael Kogan in 1953 as the Taito Trading Company, importing vodka, vending machines, and jukeboxes into Japan. wonder what was the most popular. What do you think? Vodka, vending machines, or jukeboxes? Hmm. I'd go with vodka. I was going to say vending machines because they're everywhere in Japan from what I understand. Maybe a vodka vending machine. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a good uh, good thought. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Taito started making video games in 1973, all using discrete logic hardware technology and bespoke components, which was common in early arcade games before the rise of more standardized arcade hardware. So, and this is stuff that you'd see that was more, oh, more uh, mechanical in nature instead of dealing with your CPU and then your C- centralized CPU and then you have your RAM and uh, <clears throat> stuff that, that you would normally expect out of a printed uh, arcade machine with a printed circuit board or PCB attachment with your wiring harness and your monitor it's not not quite standardized stuff when we're talking about discrete logic yeah some of that hardware is pretty interesting to to kind of look at oh i bet just sort of, sort of like with nintendo's and uh or gunpoint yoko's some of his designs for toys before nintendo went to fall into video games mm, right Taito's first major success was in 1978 with the famous Space Invaders, which became a worldwide phenomenon. It is essentially started the shooting game craze, and it's still going strong today. You can still in arcades find a copy of Space Invaders. It's, it's maybe a, what, I forget how tall is that latest one. It's. It's pretty oh, pretty tall, isn't it? Space Invaders Frenzy, yeah, and it's uh, it's pretty cool. It's uh, it's got a really tall screen. It's similar in size to the uh, world's biggest Pac-Man machine, is what it's called, where it's uh, Pac-Man and Galaga that you can choose from, and it's 
It's all based on LED lights that make the picture uh, to make it look like large pixels. And Space Invaders Frenzy is real similar to that, where you either sit or stand behind this sort of podium, and then you hold these um, what are kind of like light guns, and you're shooting the enemies on screen with those. Kaito continued to innovate with shooting games throughout the 1980s and 90s, particularly with their Darius series of games, among others. And hopefully we get to do a Darius game soon. Yeah, I hope so, too. Maybe by 2021, when Strictly Limited has shipped, or at least tried to ship, the collections it sold. Oh, yeah. Huh. Oh, here's hoping. Here's hoping we at least get those this year. Yeah. Taito also published many shooting games for other developers, notably some early Toplan shoot 'em ups such as Tiger Heli and Twin Cobra. In 2005, Taito was acquired by Square Enix, though it continues to operate its own brand of arcades throughout Japan. In 2018, Taito announced through Japanese magazine Famitsu that it would begin publishing games for the console market once again, as well as develop new console games. And that's one of the things I'm a little bit curious about, is since we got the announcement recently for the Darius Collection 2, I wonder if there'll be sort of a unique game on there. That would be interesting. Um, I mean, I know they did the the new Bubble Bobble Friends, or what it, whatever it's called, that is basically a new game. People are calling it Bubble Bobble 4, essentially. Um, so, yeah, that would be interesting to see if if that came with a new game or maybe some kind of a remix of something uh, or a mashup of earlier Darius games. So, yeah, that'd be interesting. And I'm certain there'll be some DLC as Darius Burst Chronicles has shown us... Uh, you can really add a lot of DLC to a title. Yep. All right. So, Grid Seeker Project Stormhammer was released in arcades in 1992 and incorporated a mechanic known as Gyrodive Reactive Intercept Device, a.k.a. Grid. And, well, also the game's namesake. The Grid system works similar to the Force Pod in our type that it can deflect some enemy fire and can be positioned around your craft in various ways. I think the easiest way to describe this is anyone who's played Arkanoid or Breakout on there, you're basically flying your ship around and you're using the grid to, to catch the ball, to ca- catch the bullets that the enemies in cinema. I sort of think, or sort of jokingly referred to this game as Schmup Pong. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because you're all, for the most part, you're always going to be with your, your ship at the bottom of the screen, you're going to just be repositioning the grid system in order to try and catch as many pink, or as uh, I've heard on Hardcore 101, bullet candy. Give me that sweet, sweet bullet candy. <laughs> <laughs> to your ship. And the reason why you would want to do so, and we'll get a little bit more in depth in there, is the more pink bullets your grid can get, gets or absorbs, then the more bomb stock you get. Yep. Grid Seeker is part of Taito's F3 line of arcade boards, which runs the infamous Motorola MC68000 sound hardware and a Motorola 6802, 
sorry, 68020 CPU. Notable title F3 games include Rayforce, Elevator Action Returns, and most of the Puzzle Bobble series. And don't forget about Darius Guide N. Motorola's 68K line of processors powered many of the computers in arcade games during the 1980s and 1990s. Indeed. Would you like to uh, start off with the uh, creep, creepily semi-realistic story? <laughs> yeah. So the story, as taken directly from Wikipedia, in an alternate Persian Gulf War era, the fighting continued so much that many natural resources from the Middle East were destroyed in the process. In 1999, a Middle Eastern nation that was suffering severely from resource shortages took up arms and began attacking closer nations that were more economically sound so as to claim the resources for themselves. As the new war progressed, the aggressor nation began developing a secret weapon, a powerful military satellite with enough power to potentially lay waste to the entire world. With a weapon so powerful, conquering the holdout nations would be a task impossible to fail. The nations that escaped from the ensuing battles formed an alliance against their attackers. With the aid of a new technology known as Gyrodrive Reactive Intercept Device, GRID, the alliance takes to the skies and strikes back at their enemies in the Second Persian Gulf War. <clears throat> so yeah, the far-off future of 1999, as, uh, as it was in 1992 anyway. It's so far off it's retro. Yeah, but uh, you can sort of see that in 1992, when this game was made, that the I mean, possibility that uh, there could be more and more wars in the Middle East. Uh, yeah, it's uh, interesting, and you can sort of see why this uh, wasn't wasn't used going forward. But it, it, it's an interesting premise for a military shooter around this time. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it from the from the 1992 vantage point, when the Gulf War was sort of wound winding down or wound down at that point, that was I think still fresh in people's minds. So the idea that well that could happen again if somebody you know did a power grab or what have you um, was probably not that far off. But yeah, in a lot of ways it was uh, somewhat prescient because. Obviously, we have seen more of that in recent years, although not with big mechs and, um, you know, huge military machines that fly. Yeah, and uh, I last time I checked, none of our, or none of anybody's aircraft has a force pod or a grid system. <laughs> right. <laughs> if only. Right, yeah, I used to imagine for uh, Top Gun Two or what's it called, Maverick on there. All right. Here we go, Maverick. All you need to do is activate the grid pod and catch all the enemy bullets. <laughs> that would be amazing. <laughs> yeah, that I can think of like Afterburner, Afterburner 3. Well, technically, I guess Afterburner 4. Catch all the grid. Oh, geez. Wow. Too many ideas. Yep. Not enough time. All right. So <laughs> the gameplay in Grid Seeker revolves around... Three different types of craft. It basically, start you have your fast craft, your middle of the road craft, and then your slow craft. With the slow craft being able to have the highest firepower, and then the fast craft being the 
<coughs> well, with the least amount of firepower. We'll start off with the F-14 fighter jet, which is the default and is the fastest of the group, but has the weakest weaponry. Uh, straight ahead shot. And this is where I started off with and sort of found a little bit of a groove because it made it really easy to maneuver enemy bullets. But the problem with this is you're sort of hitting with Gradius Syndrome with this choice. If you get hit or get destroyed, it's back to the pea shooter, and it's almost impossible to catch up. Yeah. But while you're fully powered up, it's really quick to dodge stuff and then really do some damage to this. What did you, your findings in this? Yeah, it was kind of the same. I I played it first because it was the default, and I liked the fast movement, but I, I found that early in the game, before I kind of learned the patterns and stuff, I found myself flying into bullets uh, as much as I was catching them. So I actually needed something a little bit slower to help me balance out a little bit. So I ended up not using the, the fighter jet very much. Yeah, I saw somebody playing... Originally, I was watching a lawn play, and I saw somebody doing this like, it seems possible, it looks possible, and then I realized that their life counter never went down, and I said, they're cheating, never mind. Oh, yes, I saw that I saw that play on, uh, on YouTube. Now, the second craft is the H64F, Attack Chopper, which has the best balance of speed and attack power. And it has, by default, a spread shot. And I tried this a couple of times, but it's just so middle of the road where I couldn't... It, it didn't do anything extraordinary, so I, it just fell by the wayside pretty quickly. And I found myself just dealing with the uh, stealth bomber instead. It, it just doesn't... Being middle of the road doesn't give you any type of advantage on there it i mean granted it doesn't give you any disadvantage but for a game that relies upon you to either go full fast and you know what you're doing and anticipate anticipate the patterns or force your way through with with your powered up shot and your overpowering with weaponry just didn't work out yeah, I I took to the helicopter initially after giving up on the plane and initially finding the stealth bomber a little bit too slow. And I really like the, the, the spread shot when it's fully powered up, but it doesn't cover that much ground until it's fully powered up. And even then, I feel like it's a little bit weak. So, yeah, it, it's just... I think you're right on the money. It's just a little bit too much middle of the road in that sense. And it doesn't quite have either enough firepower or enough speed to really do what you need to do. Uh, and then the last we have the B2AT, which I, I keep always thinking that there's sort of a play here called Bat Stealth Bomber. Oh, yeah. It's the slowest option, but has the strongest attacks. Fully powered up, has a widespread shot that can span the screen's width. And this is where I sort of went to later. Because to me, Grid Seeker is more of a king closer to R-type. 
in the white manufacturer there are older school shmup where memorizations required and I'm not saying they aren't on Damaku games but this game expects you to know what's coming up and you either dodge it and keep fl flying through again with the F-14 or with the the bat stealth bomber or I think that the bat stealth bomber is more of a recommendation for the newer player because it gives you a lot more time to control the screen and we'll get we'll get into a little bit about screen control in here but as you're spending the majority of your time at the bottom you have a little bit more time to deal with and anticipate your shots versus move around so being able to control the screen with your shots and minimize the amount of enemies on the screen is easier to do than to do some fancy flying around the screen and try and destroy everything that way. I uh, I definitely went for the stealth bomber somewhere around maybe the halfway point during the month. I decided I was I was frustrated. I was struggling with the chopper. I wasn't doing enough damage, and uh, I was I was having issues with you know just dying too much and not not getting where I wanted to be. So then I finally went to the B2 bomber and I found once it was fully powered up with that wide spread shot, you cover a lot of ground. You take out a lot of popcorn enemies and you really have a lot more ability to do crowd control. Now that compensates for not being able to zip around the screen like you can with the plane, but I felt like that was a, a good compromise because that is kind of how I like to play a lot of old school shmups anyway, is give me a wide shot or something that's got a, uh, a lot of range or, or firepower to it so I can clear the field and then move around on the screen where I know I need to be in order to either take on a, a larger enemy or avoid an obstacle or whatever it is. And I felt like the bomber, for me at least, was the best uh, best option to do that. What struck me interesting about this game is it sort of falls what would be established as the cave guidelines. I feel like stage one, you get through pretty qu quickly. Stage through two, it ramps up the difficulty a little bit. But stage three is sort of like, okay, well, you've seen enough of this game. You know, we're, we're, we've got your quarter already. you got some time. Get off the machine. Yeah. It, it really ramps up the difficulty there. And if you die in stage three and you're left with the pea shooter, here you better have that bomber because it's going to ca cause you some pain if you don't. That's one of my complaints about this game is nothing times out. It If you are fighting a boss with a pea shooter... Holy smokes, talk about just long, long playtime. Yeah. I, I will I will say one one addendum to that is there's one thing that times out, and it's the final boss. And I'll get to oh, yes. I'll, I'll get to that a little bit later. I I do have to also say in the game's credit, it does strike me a little bit of having a little bit of the the rising style where it, if anyone plays and remembers the short levels of Strikers in 1945, the levels are short. Oh, you mean Psycho? 
no, I, I was refer- uh, Striker's 1945. Yeah, that's Psycho. Oh, Psycho, I'm sorry. Uh, all right. Coffee break, no. Uh, so, <laughs> so, yes, uh... No, uh, Strikers, where it has this, just short enough levels. I like that design element of it, but it's the bosses themselves sort of wear down the game because you spend maybe a good couple couple minutes, if that, in, you're through the stage. But when you get to that boss, if you're not powered up enough, you're just slogging it through. Yep. So the game uses a standard two-button configuration. Um, one button fires your main and secondary weapons. And the thing with this game is holding down the button will make it auto fire. But when you're in auto fire and the button is held down, the grids will move around your craft and change positions depending on where you move. So if you move your craft upward on the screen while holding the fire button down, the grids will kind of slide around to the side and eventually behind your, your craft. And again, if you then hold the bar button down and move downward on the screen, they'll kind of slide around to the side and then move up top uh, in front of your craft again. And so it, it's something that you have to get used to. So if you wanna, if you want to have auto fire engaged and not move the grids around, you either need to hang out at the bottom of the screen or just get used to tapping the button a lot for, for shooting the weapon. Yeah, this is something I would have loved to have, like in the later when uh, Sarah Flesh talked about in the latest Studio Mudprints review of the expansion for Rolling Gunner. If, can you imagine if this had uh, two analog sticks, one for moving you, you're playing one for controlling the grid? Oh wow, that would be interesting. I mean that that would be beautiful control, but uh, of course this is way too early for that type of stuff. Sure, or even a third button so that you could have auto fire. But without moving the grids, you know, or or have a dedicated yeah. grid button, you know, have a have an auto fire button where you could tap the button for fire or hold it down for auto fire. Have a, a bomb button and then have a grid button so that when you hold the grid button down, whether you're auto fire or not, you can move the grids back and forth. And you know, I know that I know that was a a thing that was discussed during the course of the month that we'll get into later. Uh, now, of course, the other button is. Um, your bomb button, and that will release a bomb from your stock, assuming you have some. As you mentioned before, the grids work in similar fashion to the Force bits in the R-Type series of the Force pod, where they can block some enemy fire, but not all, and they will deal damage to enemies when they come in into contact with them. Not only that, but the grids will collect bullets, and then that fills a meter at the bottom of your screen. There's a POW meter. And when that meter fills up, you get an additional bomb in your stock. Uh, Sorry, one thing I want to add in here is the bullets that you collect have to be pink, which is interesting. I think, as well, to my knowledge, it's the first example we have of pink bullets in shmups. I think it's, so. Yeah, I, I, I think it's BC or before cave. Right. Yeah, I was asking around in uh, a couple of the other shmup discords, if there were any other known games prior to Donpachi that had this pink bullet uh, situation where they were very bright, defined pink bullets that were easy to see on screen and no one else could come up with an example. That's not definitive, of course, but this is the earliest example that I'm aware of 
that has those pink bullets. But uh, you, your maximum bomb stock is four, and when when once you have four bombs, you can still feel the meter again after stocking a fourth bomb, and that factors into the scoring, which we'll mention later. Uh, some enemies will drop P icons, uh, the letter P, uh, to power up your primary and secondary weapons. You can increase your power level up to seven times, and then, of course, collecting the P icons also appears to increase the game's rank, which makes things marginally more difficult, though it doesn't seem to increase it at the difficulty level of some later games, like those from Cave and Rising. So you're not going to be dealing with Battle Garega-style rank or anything like that, uh, but I did notice that it was a little bit more difficult um, and things got a little bit more hectic once you were more powered up. Other enemies will drop a letter G icon that uh, is to power up your grid. That changes in color every few seconds, and uh, that'll determine the, the type of secondary weapon or fire that you have, as well as the bomb that you drop. Now, really quick with this, when, when the enemies are destroyed and a G icon is dropped, it almost always goes to the upper portion of the screen. And that's something that is very different than stuff because it's almost always putting yourself in immediate danger on there. When you're you're controlling the screen, for the most part, in the, on Gridseeker, you're controlling the bottom half of the screen. The enemies, all, will, for the most part, all come from the top. So anytime you have to go up in there, not only if you're firing and you're moving up, your grids are going to move to the bottom, which means you're not going to be catching enemy fire. Or you stop, and then you just go straight up and not fire at there where you're trying to collect the power-up. The risk of collecting a power-up in this game is much higher than any other shmup I've played. Yeah, and, and one thing to note then, when the power-ups drop, yeah, they start to move up toward the screen, but then they kind of curve back around, and they make a wider path every time. So it's almost like a, a coil sort of like the Dreamcast logo, where it starts out in the middle and then sort of coils out slowly, and then that gets bigger, and then it gets bigger again, and then eventually, after it makes a third or fourth pass, I don't remember right off the top of my head, but then when it comes, or when it goes back around to the bottom and then up toward the top of the screen, it'll eventually fly away. Uh, there are four different colors for the, the grids. The default is pink, which you're equipped with at the start of the game, and whenever you uh, shoot down an enemy that drops a G icon, it will always start as pink. You fire a twin laser burst that fires forward, and then your bomb is a large explosion that sort of radiates out from its central position for a little bit and destroys all enemy uh, bullets that are incoming, or all enemy fire. Uh, the blue G icon equips your craft with a, a similar forward-firing projectile, similar to the pink, but a little bit wider. And then also, its bomb is a dual laser that shoots forward. Uh, it does not necessarily clear enemy fire, uh, but you do get the added effect of when the laser fires, there's sort of a, a flash effect that happens on the left and right side of your craft that will take out enemies or damage enemies that happen to be on the sides. Um, so it's useful for that. The green 
G icon will give you a homing shot as the secondary weapon, and so it sort of sends out these green blobs, for lack of a better term, or, you know, little green clouds or whatever, that shoot out. Those do not clear enemy fire, uh, at least, you know, by themselves, but when you deploy a bomb, it creates this sort of green cloud snake thing that goes around all over the screen, which does clear enemy fire, but its behavior pattern is a little bit unpredictable, uh, I found. It doesn't quite follow the same path everywhere because it sort of acts as a homing weapon, and so it just kind of tries to sort of home in on stuff as it flies around the screen. Uh, very useful in a couple of areas in the game. And then finally, the orange weapon uh, equips you with a repeating bomb drop that kind of creates a small area of effect explosion in front of your craft. Uh, and then the bomb is essentially a larger version of that that creates this big explosive orb that lasts for a few seconds. Um, though I did not find that it effectively cleared enemy fire. So be careful when you use that bomb that you can't just panic bomb with that because it doesn't always clear that away. There's also in stages one, three, five, and possibly seven, I was not able to determine that, uh, there's at least one enemy in each of those stages that will yield the H icon, which assigns a helper craft to, uh, to you. Uh, in the first uh, and fifth stage, it will spawn a helicopter. And then in stage three, you get a special bomber plane. When you grab the H icon, usually the helper's entrance will be accompanied by a flurry of missiles to help you clear on screen, uh, clear the screen of some enemies. And then also the helper craft have limited HP, but they can take a, a fair amount of damage before they retreat. Uh, the other thing to note with those is they kind of sort of follow you around the screen. And if you retreat all the way to the back of the screen, they'll move forward uh, and take the brunt of the damage, but they won't last as long. So if you want them to last a little bit longer, you'll need to fly further up the screen so that you're ahead of them and they kind of creep back down a little bit so that they're toward the bottom of the screen. And that way they're providing additional fire, but you can still try and catch as many bullets and things with the grids as possible to help your helper last longer uh, so that they can help you longer. Oh yes, the other thing I wanted to note was, and I noticed this, I thought it was a glitch or some kind of RNG but I was able to correlate this throughout the month that for enemies that will specifically drop power-up icons, if you kill that enemy with the grids because they cause damage or you do enough damage with the grids prior to killing the enemy, they will not drop the power-up. So they have to be shot-killed in order to drop those power-ups, which I thought was interesting and definitely something to note if you want to tackle this game. All right, well, we're going from power-ups to powerful graphics. Let's take a look. Yeah. So I, I really enjoyed the look of this game. I thought it was very early 90s. It reminded me of a lot of Konami's output at the time. It just has that distinct style, and it would really, well, in my opinion, it would really look well on the Super Nintendo had a conversion. You could have done something neat with the parallax effects with mode seven, 
a possibility, and it would have stood out as one of the better shmups on the system. I think if if you compare Gridseeker to a couple of the other, I'll say, vertical military-style shmups that were on the Super Nintendo at the time, such as Strike Gunner STG or D-Force or even something like Acrobat Mission, which we never got in North America, this, this game, had if it had a good conversion on the Super NES, probably would have blown those games out of the water. And yeah, I think, you know, like you said with the Mode 7, I really think that the canyon or the cliffside effect that you see in Stage 2 is, it's possible that they could have approximated that somehow with Mode 7 and really made something impressive with that. Now, I don't know how much of that they could have done, but it may, it might have been enough to translate the game reasonably well to the hardware. The other part that stood out to me was the tanks were actually making tracks in the sand. I forget if it's Stage 4 or stage, maybe Stage 5. You know the big, the big tank boss as as it's following you, trying to get a shot at you. You can see it's making dynamic tracks in the sand, and you sort of get that effect with some of the smaller tanks. Sure, and there's other cool effects in it too, like um, when some of the enemies blow up. It's not just an explosion, but some of the enemies also, you know, the craft makes shrapnel that kind of flies out. You know, it's pretty it's pretty scripted, but it looks cool. Or things like when you shoot down enemy planes and helicopters, you'll see the little parachutes, you know, guys with parachutes come out and they're real small and then they sort of swing around a little bit and get smaller as they go down. And so a lot of nice little details like that 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 really give the game a lot of visual pizzazz. But it's a lot more it's a lot more colorful and a lot more stylized than I think a lot of the other military shoot-em-ups at the time. I mean, it kind of reminds me a little bit of Vapor Trail. Uh, you know, I think stylistically, okay. it's 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 not unlike that game. You know, those those would be kind of in a similar conversation in terms of military-style vertical shooters that are sort of distinct and have a little bit of their own flavor. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. There's, I mean, not to say that that it's all rosy, though. There are some stuff that, in my opinion, I think yours as well could have been done a little bit better. The enemy, the some of the shots from the enemies, majority of them were pink, but the ones that were not were a little hard to see because it does fly through a lot of stuff very fast. Yeah, I mean, like the homing missiles and some of the rockets. Yes. You know, it's a little bit of a contrast because you've got these bright pink bullets that, yeah, let's collect those with the grids, and those are kind of unrealistic. And then you have things like the stage two boss with the giant orange orbs and and then the pink bullets from the turrets and things, and that's all easy to see. But then you've got these really skinny, tiny little missiles and rockets that get shot at you, and those are much more realistic looking in contrast and with everything else being so colorful and those being kind of gray and drab, they sort of just disappear a little bit. So they get a, that you have to anticipate them and know that they're coming or otherwise you can easily fall prey to one of those, especially because a lot of them will move very quickly. 
Especially those rockets that are fired. Those things move extremely fast. All right. Anything else on the graphics? No, I mean, I just think uh, for for early Taito F3 hardware, I, they really created some neat effects. The, the cliffside in Stage 2 is impressive. So Yeah. And I have to say, going back to the Super Nintendo, if not the Super Nintendo... And I understand why this wasn't done, but this would have been really cool to see it properly done on the Saturn. Oh, yeah. When the Saturn was getting everything on here. And I, it, it, it feels like with everything this game does, this game is, that it feels like with 1992 here, we're at a sort of a tipping point or a historical junction for shmups it could have gone you know Don Maku ha- is just sort of beginning here with we've got Batsugan it would have been interesting to see an alternate timeline where this type of shmup the traditional shmup went on and Don Maku sort of became the uh, subgenre yeah and I mean this is this is right before you started to see the rise of Psycho and Rising and kind of the transition from the the traditional shmup, which this would still be considered, into that more manic style that kind of became the transitional period before Cave really brought things in with the uh, realistically Dodonpachi. Donpachi is, is manic, but it's kind of proto-Bullet Hell or Maku. But I think Dodonpachi really kicked that off. So this this kind of serves as one of the shmups that was part of that sort of last gasp of shoot-em-ups that was hectic, but it wasn't super hectic, at least not as compared with some of what came later prior to moving and the genre kind of going full Maku. Now, do you believe that's just because of the way that arcades were going at the time, or what do you? What's your take on it? I don't know. I mean, uh, part of it, I think, might have been that as game, as more of these games started to come out, because it was a popular genre for a little while. As more and more of these games came out, my assumption is that arcade or you know developers started to do things like the like the grid mechanic and that to kind of throw a new gimmick at the game and and try to get people to try it because it was something different but there were too many people probably that were too good at these games to where arcade operators started to see less and less return and so as the diminishing returns kind of was happening then developers had to start doing more interesting things with the games which is then why you started to see things like Psycho designing these games that, oh, well, the first four stages are going to be different every time, so you're going to have to be on your toes and spend a lot more money if you want to see more of the game. Or, or again, later with the Maku games where, yeah, okay, stage one's not going to be too bad. Stage two, we're going to make things pretty difficult. And then stage three, you're going to hit a wall. <laughs> and so, you know, I think uh, looking at I mean, we looked at Ketsui, which was a decade after this, and there was such a such a paradigm shift with the genre within this kind of 10-year span uh, that happened between there 
you know, almost almost halfway between there. So it really was a very interesting transition that happened very shortly after this came out where things started to get, you know, the game started to get crazier. They started to get harder and they started to cater more toward that hardcore audience rather than trying to go for a a wider appeal. And to back this up, I would say that the wider appeal was starting to go more towards the one-on-one fighting game because in February 1991, Street Fighter 2 came out. Yep. And that took the world by storm. So what are you going to do? You're going to go to the people who will play any, the hardcore players who will play the shmups. So you, you, the people who are really good. So you have to come up with rank to make sure that you get your quarters still and you, it makes money. And it's really interesting dynamic to see how the arcade scene was changing from, is you have, let's say, you from the beginning 80s you have the earlier the proto shmups with with stuff like galaga galaxian and uh, phoenix you have a whole bunch of stuff within there then it sort of stops for a little bit and then within the like let's say 1985 until 89 you start to get a lot more in the shmups we have gradius three at the tail end with the gradius uh, number one at 1985 you start to get I don't know, maybe the, the Golden Age or the Old Guard. I'm trying to think of when R-Type came out around that time. Was R-Type was one of the... That I was, think it was 88. 88, okay. So you, you have a lot of the Old Guard within or in there. And then... Huh. Either, either way, it's still, it's still within that time frame. Between, it's between Gradius 1 and Gradius 3. So you have a, the, the decline of the old guard of the shmups the way that it used to be had the rise of the Damaku and then you have Street Fighter 2 or the 101 fighter taking over the arcades is I think prior to that in like 1988 or 89 you have uh, Yair Kung Fu which isn't going to get too many people excited of course he has the Street Fighter 1 in 87 but uh, but the other one I was thinking of is Karate Champ and I can't think of a date for that I think Karate Champ is 88, maybe? Oh, it's got to be earlier, earlier than that. Earlier than that, you think? You think 80, 86 or something like that? But anyways, it, you, 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 it, it's an interesting time of transition when one-on-one fighters were taking over and Street Fighter Two was king of the arcade. And, and uh, we'll talk about this a little bit later, but I, I, you just see Gridseeker as being pushed or relegated to an also ran, and also ran in a genre that was fading away from the limelight. Yeah. Well, moving on to the sound. Based on my playtime, I would say that the sound effects are pretty standard fare for shmups of the time, but they fit. Uh, so there's nothing. There's nothing bad about the sound effects, uh, but also nothing that really stands out as either annoying or really awesome. I just think everything fits well for the game, and that's that's about all I can say for the sound effects. The music, on the other hand, I actually quite liked uh, a bit of that. 
Um, that was, of course, done by Zuntata, which is Taito's in-house band. And uh, one thing I noted here in our in our notes was that there's an interesting cadence to the tracks. Stage one is very upbeat. There's a lot of energy, and the boss theme kind of reflects that. And then stage two has a very somber, downbeat kind of feel. And then the boss theme has this real minimalist approach with kind of a weird... Um, tonality to it that uh, Zintada would sort of capitalize on later in the decade with games like uh, G. Darius or Ray Crisis and things like that. Uh, and then stage three, right back to upbeat, very catchy, and the boss theme is, is intricate and catchy and almost happy sounding. And so it's a really interesting kind of back and forth with the music what about you what did you what did you think of the music in the game i thought the music was fantastic it was definitely something that i would listen to and i'm sure that the fact that they've made several copies of the soundtrack available is a testament to its longevity it really didn't feel grating at any one point no matter how many times i was playing through stage three i just it just stuck with me and i really like the boss theme it feels very dramatic yeah um yeah the the stage three boss theme i absolutely love that and i i mean i really like the the first stage music and i like the stage three music um, and then, of course, the stage one music repeats again in stage four. But, uh, yeah, I really think overall the music is, is quite good. I will say there, there are mixed opinions on stage two and the stage two boss theme. If you want to see Duke Togo get PTSD, just mention Grid Seeker stage two and uh, listen to him shudder. Because he, he mentioned that several times when he was watching me stream the game that uh, he was not a fan of that music. <laughs> but uh, there, there was two different CD releases for the soundtrack. Uh, in 1993, they put out one. And, and the credits that I found is that the music was composed by Norihiro Furukawa. And then the arrangement was from Tamayo Kawamoto, who was former Capcom. And then the performance of the music was by uh, Shuji Nakamura. And then in 1999, funny enough, the year the game is set in, uh, they put out Grid Seeker, The Dictator of Justice, which is an arranged soundtrack. So again, the same compositions by Norihiro Furukawa, but this time arranged and performed by... Hideyuki Daichi Suzuki. And then as of this recording, both the original soundtrack with a slight change and the Dictator of Justice arrangement are available on Apple Music. Um, but the digital version of the original OST does not have the voice sample collection that was contained on the original CD version. So if you really want the voices, like uh, Power Up and those kinds of things... You'll have to buy the CD. Yeah, there's there's nothing memorable in there for a voice collection than like the Gravity Bomba. <laughs> so I I think it's better to just buy the digital in this case. It's probably cheaper. Definitely. Uh, just a quick addition here. 
Yair Kung Fu came out in January of 1985, and Karate Chant came out in 1984. So we're talking right the year before Gradius, and right pretty close to the time that Gradius came out. So pretty early one-on-one fighters. Yeah. All right. So let's move on to scoring. You can get score from, well, destroying enemies, as well as an end stage bonus for the number of enemies you take down. Pretty standard fare. Yeah, and one thing that I forgot to note is the end stage bonus for the number of enemy kills that you have, that is cumulative. So as you go through the game, um, the number of enemies that that you've taken out adds up per level. So... You know, the first level, if you defeat 70 enemies, let's say, and then you get to the second level and it says you defeated 150, well, that means you've defeated 150 total, but the bonus carries over. So you actually, it builds upon itself for every level that you complete. Very nice. All right. So your bomb stock also plays a role in the end stage score bonus as well. No bombs at the end of the stage means, well, no points. One bomb at the end of the stage equals 1,000 points. Two bombs equal 3,000 points. And three bombs equal 10,000 points. Four bombs equal 20,000 points. And four bombs plus a full meter at the end stage equals 50,000 points. Right. So yeah, four bombs by itself is 20k. But if you, but if you have four bombs and a full meter then it's the 50k. And that's where the real money's at in terms of scoring. If your helper craft, which again is the uh, stages, let's see, it was two... No, it's the one, three, five, and one, three. possibly okay. seven. seven. On there, which <clears throat> the ones that I've seen are have always been uh, helicopters right. for the helper craft. Uh, it's, well, if your help, helper craft is still alive when the boss is defeated, you automatically receive a 50k point bonus special at the end of the stage. P icons are worth 1,000 points for each collected beyond the maximum. and But G icons, however, are worth no additional points. Right. And the one thing I forgot to say is, uh, I think it's... I want to say it's uh, something like 100 points... It's either 100 points or 1,000 points. I wish I wrote this down. I, I apologize. But that's the the per enemy bonus that you get. And so I think it's 100 points. So it doesn't sound like much. So when you get, say, 70 kills in the first level or whatever, that's 7,000 points. But again, since it's cumulative, as you go along in the later stages, that just adds up. So obviously... The more enemy kills you get, not only do you get the initial points, but then you also get that added effect on top of it with the cumulative bonus. I have to say, trying to get with a full stock of bombs and then having the meter full is really hard to do. Is This game's bosses are bullet sponges. And they... I mean, the whole idea is so that you get that sweet, sweet pink uh, bullet candy in order to fill up your bomb meter, but then you need to use the bomb meter in order to destroy the bosses. Otherwise, you're going to be sitting there for the next hour just pecking away at the boss's health bar. Yeah, that's that's one of the many things in this game that 
you know, we kind of hinted at it at the top of the, the show, but I, I think this game is one of those that, that really does hit on a lot of, of things. You know, it has good graphics. It has some good design. It's got good music. It's got solid sound effects. It's got the cool grid mechanic, which is kind of, kind of fun, but it doesn't, I think it misses the mark in a few areas, uh, just enough to kind of take it down a few notches to where it doesn't belong in the upper echelon of, of arcade shmups or vertical shooters from this era, where I think one of the things is it's really lopsided in terms of, of the scoring. Um, you don't get that many points from killing enemies during the stage. And the bonus, like I said, is is not that much until you get four or five stages in where you get that cumulative bonus and all of a sudden, oh, I've got 350 enemy kills. And so now I've got, say, 30,000, 35,000 points that uh, I get at the end of the stage. But that, that 50,000 bonus for beating the boss and having your full bomb stock and the full meter really comes into play. And as I said, that's where the real money's at. And so that is where it almost makes me wonder if this is one of those early games during the course of shoot 'em ups where it kind of encourages that sort of no miss, no bomb sort of mentality that started to come out in later, especially with uh, with some of the some of the cave shoot 'em ups and things like that. But it almost seems antithetical because the grid mechanic by gathering the pink bullets fills your bomb stock. So in a way, the game is encouraging you to bomb because, well, you can just fill it up again by collecting bullets. And there are going to be plenty of opportunities to do that during the course of the level, especially if instead of destroying everything the instant it comes on screen, you let it come on screen long enough to shoot some bullets at you and then take it out because you've got the grids there to collect those and help protect you against, you know, the basic small bullets. So you've got this mechanic that is encouraging you to stock bombs and use bombs, but then you have a conflicting scoring mechanic that at the end of the level is encouraging you not to use those bombs. So to me, it feels like you have to strike a balance by either collecting enough bullets and filling that stock up early so that you can maybe use a bomb to ensure that you're taking out a, a heavier group of enemies or something like that, and then hopefully gathering enough bullets either from the last few enemies in the level or from the boss itself to be able to then have that meter be full by the time you get to the end so that you can take advantage of that, of that bonus. So it's a little bit of a delicate balance, and I don't think it quite... I don't think it quite works as well as it could. Some of the later boss fights, such as in stage four and stage five, where the bosses throw a ton of bullets at you, gives you the opportunity to, on every kind of repeat of its pattern, you could throw a bomb and then gather a bunch of bullets and basically refill what you just deployed and just keep kind of rinse and repeat with those. And and that's what I kind of learned to do with stage four, especially and stage five. Uh, so you can, you can kind of play with that enough to where 
you know, use some bombs and get through the first pattern and then get kind of midway through the second pattern to where, okay, I've deployed a bomb. Now I need to not use a bomb and just dodge stuff so I can gather the bullets and make sure I've got a, a full meter prepared so that then I can go back and, and get this bonus. Um, so I don't think it's as, as elegant as it ought to be in order for the, the game to work as well as I think it could. I think if the sound effects were a little bit more distinct or if the... I understand why they went with a two button because that was still very common at that time. Um, most of these were not probably dedicated cabinets at this point by 1992. Most of them were conversion cabinets or people were buying kits so that they could swap out the board with another F3 board or, you know, something else that was going to have a similar uh, JAMA type adapter or what have you. And so, yeah, there were probably a lot of two button cabinets out there that were at that point, you could almost say the legacy hardware. And so instead of having to buy a new cabinet for that, you know, cause you had all kinds of two button cabinets, then you had your, MVS cabinets, which were four buttons, and then you had the new stuff that was coming up, things like Mortal Kombat, which was unique and had five, or Street Fighter II, which had six, and sort of became a standard over time. But yeah, since it only had the two buttons, you also lose out on the either the single fire and rapid fire, or just make it rapid fire instead of making people tap the button to death and then have a dedicated grid button where you can move the grids around independently of your fire. And that would give you a lot more granular and fine control over the grids. I found myself only a couple of times during the course of the game really utilizing the ability to move the grids around and behind me, particularly on the stage two boss, uh, where there's one moment where after a, a few volleys of bullets, I would quickly kind of sweep up and to the right and the grids would swing behind me and that would block a few incoming bullets before the big orange orbs would come out and they could sweep by and then I could quickly kind of sweep back down, move the grids out in front of me again and keep pelting it with, with fire. But other than that and a couple of other instances where, you know, I was kind of doing it in a reaction manner, I mostly either uh, just tapped the button and, you know, didn't have auto fire, or I would hold the button down in sections where I knew I could kind of just slide left and right a little bit and I didn't have to move up or down, so then I didn't have to worry about the grids moving. Otherwise, I was tapping the button for fire all the time. And I think as we started to move towards games that implemented things like auto fire, more commonly, it was a little bit of a missed opportunity for Taito. For me, the interesting thing with the th is that the JAMA standard, when it came out in 1985, of course, there wasn't going to be a lot that used it. But here we are in 1990, and the JAMA standard, by default, allows for three buttons. Anything more than that, you're going to need special wiring, which is interesting that they only use two so this makes it a design choice to use two buttons sure the other thing that sort of surprised me was someone this, and it's especially prevalent with the stage three boss is it feels a bit cartoonish in some ways for a militaristic shooter 
when you, the boss comes out, the submarine boss comes out, it sort of feels like a uh, Looney Tunes cartoon <laughs> with Elmer Fudd and Bugs, or more, I would say, akin to Yosemite Sam and Bugs Bunny, where one brings out a gun, and then, of course, then Bugs brings out an even bigger gun, and then it just keeps escalating until someone's got a cannon and a battleship. Right. Where that, I mean, that thing just keeps bringing out guns and guns, just growing larger and larger. It's it's not quite taking itself seriously, which I appreciate. It's being a little bit silly. You know, I mean, you just sort of have to with pink bullets and some stuff on there, but but it it, it to me it does a good job. But it's it's just quite a, a little bit off balance, where it doesn't hit all the marks it would be for to fire on all cylinders. And, and just as you had stated earlier, the scoring system being in line to hey, we're going to give you this thing, and this entire thing is so that way you can get bombs, so that way you can take out the the bosses. But uh, you know what? On second thought, don't use it. Yeah. Like, oh, by the way, those bombs that you've been stocking, yeah, don't use those, or, or otherwise your score is going to be crap. Uh, you know, it's it's self-defeating, and I think it, it hampers the game and, and keeps it from being something that we could elevate a little bit higher up. The other thing, to d- dovetail on what you were talking about with the sort of cartoonish look, I mean, I think you're right. Because it's so bright and colorful, and, you know, you got the pink bullets and you've got some fairly fantastical enemies like the I can't call it a spider because it's only got four legs. But the big mech with two giant cannons on it in the first stage and then the second second stage, this sort of flying thing with these big arms that come out that are loaded up with turrets and everything. It's all very interesting and looks cool and it's very fantastical. But compared to other military shooters at the time, probably looked a little bit more like, you know, this is kind of the halfway point between fantasy anime military stuff and, you know, what you would get with uh, a more traditional straight-laced military game. So it doesn't, it, it really walks the line between the two, but it doesn't really lean too hard in one direction or the other. It ends up being... I don't know. Interesting, no, but not inter- as interesting as it could be. I think I think where it takes it to the full anime effect, and you see a lot of these designs fully realized, is in Anahander. Sure. I could see a lot of the, like the spider element on there. You see those a lot in stage four in Anahander. It's something that would be walking across the water, or uh, the little maybe as a prototype for the spider. I think that was still the beginning of stage four. With the the spider, remember the one that always would fire at an angle on there, and you had to constantly uh, maneuver and then caught fire. Yep. At the end, I mean, you you see a lot of these designs in here that have the anime influence or fantastical influence that that's sort that you could sort of see. And I around this time too, you're starting to get stuff like Ghost in the Shell, so you could definitely see the influence there. Right. Yeah, I just think it. It just barely misses the mark uh, in in enough areas that it's solid, but 
it doesn't do enough to kind of get beyond that. Yeah, and again, as we talked about earlier, it doesn't. The problem with getting attention for somebody is you have to be really good or you have to be really bad. If you're in the middle, you're not going to be very memorable. And I think that's exactly what happened with the shmup and why we don't see very many people know about it or very many people talk about it. Sure. I mean, right now, the only port that's been made available was on uh, Taito Legends 2, which came out on the PS2 and then uh, on the Xbox, but only in Europe for some reason. And then it was on one of the Taito Memories collections that was also on PS2. Otherwise, the only way to play this game is in MAME. Um, it's not even in RetroArch. And so, even though I have Taito Legends 2 on PS2, I spent most of the month playing it in MAME just because I don't have a good controller for PS2 that I like and I'm becoming used to playing on the arcade stick since I was doing that with, with Otometius and with Ketsui. So I just kept going and was playing it in MAME just so I could use the nice stick and also, you know, have the better, the better uh, graphics and stuff. Because when I first started playing the PS2 version, uh, the aspect ratio was all squished and I didn't realize that you could change that. And then, then cur- during the course of the month, one of the players actually mentioned, hey, in the, in the very first menu in the game, you can go in and set it to show or display in the original aspect ratio. Um, so even though it's a 480i image coming out of your PS2, it will at least show the game in you know the original vertical mode and look reasonably good for a 480i picture. But it's still not in Tate, if I remember, right? I, right. I don't think we ever found a way to do Tate on there. Yeah, that's right. what you were able to do with the, the main versions. You were able to do Tate there. Yeah, I mean, on my on my 55-inch TV that I've got in the living room, you know, sending the PS2 through my OSSC, um, it was still a, a reasonably sized picture. It was easy to see, but of course, it's an interlaced signal. So even with the Bob D interlace that the OSSC does, it still doesn't look fantastic. And using the rather lousy joystick that I have for PS2 also was not a great experience. And so ultimately, that's why I decided to mostly play MAME, because then I could actually run that. I've got a Tate monitor that I have in in my setup that's right in front of me. And so I ran the game on that, and then I had my streaming software and chat and stuff over on the TV. Uh, And then that way, you know, I I had the proper aspect ratio. I could size the window how I wanted it and make it look as big or small as fit my tastes. And, you know, I could kind of do that. And that just made more sense for me. Hey, go with what works. Yep. All right. Now that we've given a little bit of our impressions of the game, let's take a look at the community. We have from Saturday Development. I never heard of this title, but looking forward to playing it. Count me in. Well, I hope my Xbox still works. <laughs> Later post. This isn't an impressive score. I'm not even the top scorer of the default scores, but wanted to get something things started. 323,720 on easy. I can get to level 4 consistently. But things typically in there, and level four is nothing to sneeze on there. 
as we mentioned previous level three is where things sort of start to, to get a little hard especially trying to get past that boss yes uh, later post he writes i like having the green homing grid for the main levels then switching over to the blue laser for the bosses red's fine and i just can't use yellow i find the continuing explosion it puts out to be too distracting and interferes with the visuals of the fire bullets on some of the bosses of course i'm always going for a green power-up and switches to yellow at the last minute huh. i hate it too especially when you're going Going down the highway and it goes from green to yellow. Jeez, no. I <laughs> I totally you get on there. You get really close. You're making making way up the screen, or as as the power up's going on the spiral and it changes to a different color. Always gets annoying. That's probably one thing that we should add into. It would have been nice instead of changing colors on its own if it reacted to the shot of of your ship. So if you fire it, and then it would change color, so you could cycle it yourself. Sure. In a later post, he writes, I just found out there's an option in the um, title Legends 2 menu that lets you play in the original aspect ratio. In the game screen, select the default option, which will bring you to a settings menu, and then you can change it in the video settings, which was very helpful for me. Thank you for that. Yeah. Later on, he writes, not sure if this helps, but here are some tips on how I managed to defeat the level one boss and take it out pretty quick and reliable. I try to bring the helper copter with me to help out with firepower. Plus, you get a bonus for finishing the level with the helper intact. Picking up the H as late as possible helps me keep things going. The main things to dodge with the level one boss are the fireballs. The first two fireball attacks I avoid by swinging far right and then far left trying to get as many shots in between. After the first two attacks, I just pepper the core of the boss. All right, shoot the core <laughs> as, as hard as possible with fire. The next two fireball attacks can be dodged in the lower middle of the screen, but it takes a little bit of reaction skill to do so. I find the boss typically doesn't last longer, longer than these attacks. If there's an easy way to pull the video off my Xbox, I post a video and hope the above helps. Well, thank you for the strategy tips. <clears throat> Later on, he's answering a post from Easy Racer. Check your instructions. I'm using the Xbox version of <clears throat> Taito Legends 2 and the right trigger auto fires without moving the grids. If you use A, and then the grids move when you move, which I've never been able to properly control. I uh, Moving those is a pain. It I think it was... I mean... These days, they would have just done dual analog control sticks, which would be great for that type of thing. As we talked about earlier, Rolling Gunner, the expansion really does a great job with it. I'm not quite certain how you would add this within a three-button JAMA setup. I think they did the best that they could do with this idea and the options to them at the time. Yeah, they'd have to go full Robotron. <laughs> <laughs> I agree that it, that if I had buttons to control the grid movement, I would use them more. However, I tend to keep them just out directly in front. <laughs> and I, I think that they design, designed the game around that, expecting most people to be playing Shmup Pawn. Yeah, and the interesting thing to note here, too, is the Xbox version of Taito Legends 2 had that option where you could do auto-fire with the shoulder button 
uh, because on the original Xbox controller, of course, you just had the shoulder buttons and then you had the four main face buttons and then the black and white buttons. So the shoulder buttons you could use as an auto fire, which may have been done because there were so many Halo players and people used to that kind of convention that it was being developed for first person shooters. But that did not translate to the PlayStation 2 port. So for whatever reason, they added that for the European Xbox release, but we didn't get that in the North American PS2 release. So neither the L1, L2, R1, or R2 buttons, as far as I was able to tell, will produce that auto-fire without moving the grids. So I think that's exclusive to just the Xbox version. That's a pretty cool fact. So his final thoughts... Grid Seeker is a hidden gem. Uh oh. Huh. Be careful on saying that too many times. You mean some metal Jesus. <laughs> I never ha- heard of it before this playthrough, but I'm glad I've checked it out. The grid system is a unique and fun way of managing bombs and defensive strategy. I was glad the scoring system was pretty straightforward, considering this was my first shot at a monthly playthrough. The soundtrack was excellent and a good variety of tracks. The tracks on level 3 and 5 were highlights for me. One other item of note is that Taito Legends 2 is a solid compilation of games. I like that they had 3D mockups of the arcade cabinets for each game, along with some marketing materials. I tried a few of the other shooters, but they paled in comparison to Gridseeker. I did find that trying out other games after intense round of Gridseeker was a good way of cooling down. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree that the other shmups on here just weren't quite as good on there. I, I think that... Is it this one that has metal black, though? Yeah, actually, I would have to disagree with uh, with Saturday Development on this one, because this compilation has metal black, it has Darius Gaiden, and it has Raystorm. So, Those are all really good. I, uh, and keep in mind that the, the Japanese one, is there's like... They, there's like six of them or something like that, so they're not quite the same. But if, if it holds true, the PAL copy holds true to the USA release, I would have to agree with you, Fro, and say that Darius Gaiden and Metal Black and, uh, forgive me, I forgot the last one, but... Yeah, Raystorm. And, and Raystorm. I'm thinking about this now. The Xbox version is actually different. It does not have a couple of those games. Uh, let me look real quick because I okay. know that um, I know that the Xbox version is missing some games that are on the PlayStation version. So the Xbox version does not have it does not have Civalian. It does not have Raystorm, and it does not have G Darius. It does have Rayforce the first game in the Ray series uh, in place of Raystorm, which is also an excellent game. But yeah, it doesn't have Raystorm or G. Darius. So I could see how he might have thought that uh, Gridstorm was better than, let's say, Gekkaden Don or, or even Metal Black, perhaps, if that wasn't his style, or Gun Frontier. But... Uh, we might have to talk to him about Rayforce because doggone it, that's a great game. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me, sir. I respectfully disagree. No. <laughs> yes. So, 
<laughs> Would you like to take the comments from Zoido? Sure. Zoido chimed in and said, It's a cool game. I will be around and play some credits. And uh, he posted later in the thread uh, directly at uh, Saturday Development. He said, I also switch between blue and green. Usually I try to play with the blue laser and try to switch to green at the beginning of stage three. It works nice with the enemies coming from behind and the sides, and it's also helpful at the boss fight. And then uh, he specifically was saying to me, it's a bit frustrating with the power-ups. I died several times trying to pick them up, especially when you got hit and try to power up fast to stand a chance at all. Things can get a bit hectical. And uh, Zoido and Saturday Development and I had quite a bit of conversation on the game outside of the thread over in our Discord in the Shoot the Corecast channel there. So uh, there, there was some really good discussion about the game that we had there in the Discord as well that didn't make it into the thread. So definitely, uh, if you join us for a future playthrough, definitely want to make sure that you're, you're in the Discord, if you can be, and then also on the forum so that you, you get in on all the action. Sounds exciting. All right. Oh, we've got, got one from Easy Racer here. Borrowed TL2 from a friend. Now just have to get the PS2 set back up. And, oh, I understand. Getting something with 480i to work on a modern display is not easy these days. Nope. So, I wasn't able to get started on Gridseeker until late last week. Spent a fair amount of time over the weekend with it. I really want to like this game. Interesting gameplay, fun mechanic with the grids and bullet collecting, solid graphics and sound, but uh, so far I just haven't. I want to be able to shoot while moving my ship forward on the screen. I can't do that without moving the grids. Yeah, it's interesting trade-off and it's sort And... We talked about this earlier, but it's definitely one of the sticking points for this game. I just wish there was an easier way of controlling this. I, I'm not saying go full Smash TV huh. on there, but it, it's something it need to be done in the control department to make make you feel that you're doing more than a, a playing shmup pawn. I don't think even a rotary control would have helped out with that. would have been weird. if. Can you imagine having a... Um, not well. Maybe uh, you've got your joystick in the left hand and rotary control on the right to move that thing, or like a trackball. Oh wow! Yeah, that, that would have been really weird. Yeah, it, you'd be watching people play Grid Seeker. It'd be it'd be like watching someone say play Sound Voltex right uh, today. Oh yeah. Oh. Huh. Uh, <clears throat> well, I realize this is a direct port of an arcade game. Every game I find myself. Wishing the grids were controlled by the left and right triggers. I realize it's probably part of the challenge of the game to have the controls set up in this manner. But even then, basing the challenge on control gimmick rather than the natural flow of the game feels a bit artificial. And I have to agree on here. This is a a gimmick-based game where it's cool, but it just doesn't... It doesn't flow as well as you get with our type You feel that you'll always have control of the force pod. And it's your fault if you messed up. It just doesn't translate the same in this game. I probably just need to spend some more time getting used to it, but it seems like it would make the controls smoother and the game so much more accessible with this change. My best score is just under 120,000. I'm still struggling to consistently defeat the level 1 boss. 
No pics to post just yet. On a side note, playing it on a borrowed copy of Title Legends 2, I'd never heard of Metal Black until I saw it right next to Gridseeker on the game select screen. It gets an interesting shmup as well. And I fully agree with Metal Black. It's one that not too many people have heard of, but there's a great version of it on the Japanese Saturn. Indeed. So, looking at the high scores, um, since there were only the four participants, um, Metal Fro, myself, of course, uh, Zoido, Saturday Development, and Easy Racer, you know, that was kind of it for scoring. So, I ended up with the high score on the on the game with 773,910 points. I was using the bomber and I managed to reach stage 6. Saturday development came in second with 452,860 points. And I think he said he was consistently hitting a wall in stage 4. So I don't know if he ever reached stage 5. I don't recall from our our uh, discussion on the Discord. And then Zoido hit uh, 429, 690. And again, I think maybe stage four was where he uh, where he rounded out. And so that uh, that let, rounded out the top three on the scores. Congratulations to all. Yeah. All right. So, what, I think we pretty much covered this already, but final thoughts are that it's a... Good game that could have been great came at the tail end of what you of the what we would accept as a shmup golden the the original shmup or what's what I'm looking for the classic shmup golden era right there it didn't quite do enough to define itself so it's not really remembered but if you ever have the chance to try it definitely do so because. You, it's one that very few people have played, and it's worth at least experiencing. Yeah. One thing I wanted to note, um, or a couple things I wanted to note, I mentioned it earlier, but the final boss, if you don't, if you don't take the final boss out soon enough, it will time out. And I experienced this. Uh, the last night that I streamed it, I decided to do a double play. So I set the player one and player two controls exactly the same. Uh, so that I could just throw a bunch of credits at the game and then do the thing where, you know, both of the both of the things come on screen, you move them all back bottom left so that they can converge, and then, then when you move them around, they're doing exactly the same thing. So I was doing that and um, trying to essentially use the added firepower to try and get through the game a little bit more easily. I found that it did help some, but by the time you get to the final stage, stage seven, things just get absolutely bananas. And unless you have that stage memorized and you know where everything's going to be and have the ability to take stuff out quickly, it's going to be really, really difficult. And that final boss... I managed to take out part of it, but I was credit feeding there at the end and I was just underpowered. So it eventually flew away and then I got the bad ending. So I watched a very skilled double play of the game earlier and someone actually did a one credit clear and actually technically a one life clear or a two life clear, I guess, since it was one life for player one and one life for player two. Uh, but essentially a no-death-run double play using the 
the fighter plane on all the levels, and it was quite impressive. So I, I would recommend people check that out if they if they haven't already, because that's definitely worth watching. The other thing I wanted to note is there's a there's a bit of a bug in the game, a graphical bug where after you beat the stage five boss and it explodes, you will randomly have a a small portion or sometimes several portions of the explosion from that boss that will linger on the screen through the score tally screen at the at, after the boss is gone and then on through the rest of the game. And those little bits of explosion will sit there and flicker on screen and will sometimes obstruct what you're trying to see in terms of enemies or bullets coming at you. And it's a really weird bug. And I was playing both on PS2 and on MAME. I had the the most, uh, I guess, the newest iteration or most up-to-date iteration of the ROM that's been dumped. And when Saturday Development brought it to my attention in the Discord, he mentioned that he was playing on Xbox, of course, and he was credit feeding through it so he could see more of the game. And he noticed that too. And so that's a huge um, a huge bug that Taito left in the game. And obviously someone from Quality Control either missed that or just ignored it. And the game went out the door that way. So it's kind of an interesting, an interesting side note. And it could be one of the reasons that we haven't seen a, an arcade port of that game somewhere because realistically you'd want to go back and fix that. Well, maybe one day we'll see an arcade archives version of it that will have that fixed. Possibly. Would be nice. Yeah. All right. And speaking of nice, what do we have coming next? Well, as we record this, we are approaching the middle of March, which means if you are participating... The Ides of March? The Ides of March, yeah. You should already be playing alongside us with Gyrus for the Sega Genesis and Mega Drive. And then coming up in April, we have the PC shoot-em-up Steel Vampire, which was a Japanese doujin release and uh, has been on Steam now for a couple of years uh, from developer Akira Goya and then released on Steam through uh, publisher Henteko Doujin. So uh, it's usually pretty reasonable to pick up on Steam and very inexpensive. So uh, yeah, that, that one, I think the requirements for that one are pretty pretty minimal as well but it's it's ten dollars right now on steam so yeah, i think it runs on a toaster yeah <laughs> it runs on a potato computer <laughs> so yeah definitely definitely grab a copy of steel vampire if you have a even a halfway decent pc and uh come on and join us because uh i and this this looks interesting and like ketsui it has a a focus on point blanking enemies as one of its uh, game mechanics. So, yeah, if you want excitement, come join us. All right. And speaking of what we're doing next here, I'd like to give a couple shout-outs to Sarah Flash of Studio Mudprints slash Bullet Heaven for the logo. 
Kogusu for the intro and outro music. Everybody at RFGen, RFGen Playcast, and Current Electricast, as well as everybody who joined us. And we actually have the... forgot to mention this earlier, but we do have a NES challenge that is running on RFGen right now where we're trying to beat all of the licensed NES games. It seems like it used to be within a year, so it looks like within two years. Right. And I'd also like to thank Metalfro for uh, all the streaming he does. Thank you. Chasing that Twitch money. Huh. Well, yeah, I'm probably not going to see. Uh, I'm probably not going to see any of that. Uh, you know, I, I kind of take the the Forrest Gump approach. Uh, yeah, there's all that Twitch money, but I ain't seen a nickel of that. So yeah, but that's okay. I, I'm doing it for the fun and and uh, you know I enjoy streaming the shmups and playing those and I'm sure there's a, a bit of schadenfreude as people get to watch me die repeatedly and learn the stages and learn the game and so hey it's fun for all indeed alright <laughs> <sighs> well if you'd like to connect with uh, Shoot the Core cast you can follow us on Twitter at Shoot Corecast. You can follow me directly at GameboyGuru. Make sure you join RFGeneration.com and join us for a Shmup Club playthrough. And also subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on your preferred platform. We would greatly appreciate that. And uh, if you do write a review for us, we will try to get that read in a future episode. Also, check out the RF Generation Discord channel, which is linked on the front page of RFGeneration.com. And uh, come check out the dedicated Shoot the Corecast topic there, where we uh, post screenshots and scores and discuss the games, and you can give us feedback on the podcast episodes, etc. And again, also follow me on Twitch. Um, I am there on Twitch as Guru Game Boy, so twitch.tv slash Guru Game Boy. And follow me there to get notifications of new streams and to watch me fail repeatedly at the Shmup of the Month and occasionally have a small victory. If you are going to leave us a review on iTunes, please keep it to five swear words or less. <laughs> yes. Uh, family friendly like the podcast would be appreciated. 